The Kreutzer Sonata by Leo Tolstoy Chapter 1 It was early spring and the second day of our journey. Passengers going short distances entered and left our carriage. But three others, like myself, had come all the way with the train. One was a lady, plain and no longer young, who smoked, had a harassed look, and wore a mannish coat and cap. Another was an acquaintance of hers, a talkative man of about forty, whose things looked neat and new. The third was a rather short man, who kept himself apart. He was not old, but his curly hair had gone prematurely gray. His movements were abrupt, and his unusually glittering eyes moved rapidly from one object to another. He wore an old overcoat, evidently from a first-rate tailor, with an astrakhan collar and a tall astrakhan cap. When he unbuttoned his overcoat, a sleeveless Russian coat and embroidered shirt showed beneath it. A peculiarity of this man was a strange sound he emitted, something like a clearing of his throat, or a laugh begun and sharply broken off. All the way this man had carefully avoided making acquaintance or making any intercourse with his fellow passengers. When spoken to by those near him, he gave short and abrupt answers, and at other times read, looked out the window, smoked, or drank tea, and ate something he took out of an old bag. It seemed to me that his loneliness depressed him, and I made several attempts to converse with him but whenever our eyes met, which happened often as he sat nearly opposite me, he turned away and took up his book or looked out of the window. Towards the second evening, when our train stopped at a large station, this nervous man fetched himself some boiling water and made tea. The man with the neat new things, a lawyer, as I found out later, and his neighbor, the smoking lady with the mannish coat, went to the refreshment room to drink tea. During their absence, several new passengers entered the carriage, among them a tall, shaven, wrinkled old man, evidently a tradesman, in a coat lined with skunk fur and a cloth cap with an enormous peak. The tradesman sat down opposite the seats of the lady and the lawyer and immediately started a conversation with a young man who had also entered at that station, and, judging by his appearance, was a tradesman's clerk. I was sitting the other side of the gangway, and as the train was standing still, I could hear snatches of their conversation when nobody was passing between us. The tradesman began by saying that he was going to his estate, which was only one station farther on. Then, as usual, the conversation turned to prices and trade, and they spoke of the state of business in Moscow and then of the Nizhny Novgorod fair. The clerk began to relate how a wealthy merchant, known to both of them, had gone on the spree at the fair, but the old man interrupted him by telling of the orgies he had been at in former times at the Canavan fair. He evidently prided himself on the part he had played in them, and recounted with pleasure how he and some acquaintances, together with the merchant they had been speaking of, had once got drunk at Kunavin and played such a trick that he had to tell of it in a whisper. The clerk's roar of laughter filled the whole carriage. The old man laughed also, 
exposing two yellow teeth. Not expecting to hear anything interesting, I got up to stroll about the platform till the train should start. At the carriage door, I met the lawyer and the lady, who were talking with animation as they approached. "'You won't have time,' said the sociable lawyer. "'The second bell will ring in a moment.' And the bell did ring before I had gone the length of the train. When I returned, the animated conversation between the lady and the lawyer was proceeding. The old tradesman sat silent opposite to them, looking sternly before him, and occasionally mumbled disapprovingly, as if chewing something. Then she plainly informed her husband— the lawyer was smilingly saying, as I passed him, that she was not able and did not wish to live with him since. He went on to say something I could not hear. Several other passengers came in after me. The guard passed, a porter hurried in, and for some time the noise made their voices inaudible. When all was quiet again, the conversation had evidently turned from the particular case to general considerations. The lawyer was saying that public opinion in Europe was occupied with the question of divorce, and that cases of that kind were occurring more and more often in Russia. Noticing that his was the only voice audible, he stopped his discourse and turned to the old man. "'Those things did not happen in the old days, did they?' he said, smiling pleasantly. The old man was about to reply, but the train moved, and he took off his cap, crossed himself, and whispered a prayer. The lawyer turned away his eyes and waited politely. Having finished his prayer and crossed himself three times, the old man set his cap straight, pulled it well down over his forehead, changed his position, and began to speak. "'They used to happen even then, sir, but less often,' he said." As times are now, they can't help happening. People have got too educated. The train moved faster and faster, and jolted over the joints of the rails, making it difficult to hear, but being interested, I moved nearer. The nervous man with the glittering eyes opposite me, evidently also interested, listened without changing his place. "'What is wrong with education?' said the lady, with a scarcely perceptible smile. Surely it can't be better to marry as they used to in the old days, when the bride and bridegroom did not even see one another before the wedding, she continued, answering not what her interlocutor had said, but what she thought he would say, in the way many ladies have. Without knowing whether they loved or whether they could love, they married just anybody, and were wretched all their lives. And you think that was better? she said, evidently addressing me and the lawyer chiefly, and least of all the old man with whom she was talking. "'They've got so very educated,' the tradesman reiterated, looking contemptuously at the lady and leaving her question unanswered. "'It would be interesting to know how you explain the connection between education and matrimonial discord,' said the lawyer, with a scarcely perceptible smile." The tradesman was about to speak, but the lady interrupted him. No, she said, those times have passed. But the lawyer stopped her. Yes, but allow the gentleman to express his views. 
foolishness comes from education, the old man said categorically. They make people who don't love one another marry, and then wonder that they live in discord, the lady hastened to say, turning to look at the lawyer, at me, and even at the clerk, who had got up and, leaning on the back of the seat, was smilingly listening to the conversation. It's only animals, you know, that can be paired off as their master likes. But human beings have their own inclinations and attachments, said the lady, with an evident desire to annoy the tradesman. You should not talk like that, madam, said the old man. Animals are cattle, but human beings have a law given them. Yes, but how is one to live with a man when there is no love? The lady again hastened to express her argument, which probably seemed very new to her. They used not to go into that, said the old man in an impressive tone. It is only now that all this has sprung up. The least thing makes them say, I will leave you. The fashion has spread even to the peasants. Here you are, she says. Here, take your shirts and trousers, and I will go with Vanka. His head is curlier than yours. What can you say? The first thing that should be required of a woman is fear. The clerk glanced at the lawyer, at the lady, and at me, apparently suppressing a smile, and prepared to ridicule or to approve of the tradesman's words according to the reception they met with. "'Fear of what?' asked the lady. "'Why this? Let her fear her husband. That fear.' "'Oh, the time for that, sir, has passed,' said the lady, with a certain viciousness. "'No, madam.' That time cannot pass. As she, Eve, was made from the rib of a man, so it will remain to the end of time, said the old man, jerking his head with such sternness and such a victorious look that the clerk at once concluded that victory was on his side, and laughed loudly. Ah, yes, that's the way you men argue, said the lady unyieldingly, and turned to us. You have given yourselves freedom, but want to shut women up in a tower. You no doubt permit yourselves everything. No one is permitted anything, but a man does not bring offspring into the home, while a woman, a wife, is a leaky vessel, the tradesman continued insistently. His tone was so impressive that it evidently vanquished his hearers, and even the lady felt crushed, but still did not give in. Yes, but I think you will agree that a woman is a human being and has feelings as a man has. What is she to do, then, if she does not love her husband? Does not love, said the tradesman severely, moving his brows and lips. She'll love no fear. This unexpected argument particularly pleased the clerk, and he emitted a sound of approval. Oh, no, she won't, the lady began. And when there is no love, you can't enforce it. Well, and supposing the wife is unfaithful, what then? asked the lawyer. That is not admissible, said the old man. One has to see to that. But if it happens, what then? You know it does occur. It happens among some, but not among us, said the old man. All were silent. The clerk moved, came still nearer, and evidently unwilling to be behindhand, began with a smile. 
Yes, a young fellow of ours had a scandal. It was a difficult case to deal with. It, too, was a case of a woman who was a bad lot. She began to play the devil, and the young fellow is respectable and cultured. At first it was with one of the office clerks. The husband tried to persuade her with kindness. She would not stop, but played all sorts of dirty tricks. Then she began to steal his money. He beat her, but she only grew worse, carried on intrigues, if I may mention it, with an unchristened Jew. What was he to do? He turned her out altogether and lives as a bachelor while she gads about. "'Because he is a fool,' said the old man. "'If he'd pulled her up properly from the first and not let her have her way, she'd be living with him, no fear. It's giving way at first that counts. Don't trust your horse in the field or your wife in the house.' At that moment the guard entered to collect the tickets for the next station. The old man gave up his. "'Yes, the female sex must be curbed in time.' or else all is lost. Yes, but you yourself just now were speaking about the way married men amuse themselves at the Cunavin Fair, I could not help saying. That's a different matter, said the old man, and relapsed into silence. When the whistle sounded, the tradesman rose, got out his bag from under the seat, buttoned up his coat, and slightly lifting his cap, went out of the carriage. CHAPTER Two. As soon as the old man had gone, several voices were raised. "'A daddy of the old style,' remarked the clerk. "'A living domestroy,' said the lady. "'What barbarous views of women and marriage!' "'Yes, we are far from the European understanding of marriage,' said the lawyer. "'The chief thing such people do not understand,' continued the lady, "'is that marriage without love is not marriage.' that love alone sanctifies marriage, and that real marriage is only such as is sanctified by love. The clerk listened smilingly, trying to store up for future use all he could of the clever conversation. In the midst of the lady's remarks, we heard, behind me, a sound like that of a broken laugh or sob. And on turning round, we saw my neighbor, the lonely gray-haired man with the glittering eyes who had approached unnoticed during our conversation, which evidently interested him. He stood with his arms on the back of the seat, evidently much excited. His face was red, and a muscle twitched in his cheek. What kind of love, love, is it that sanctifies marriage? he asked hesitatingly. Noticing the speaker's agitation, the lady tried to answer him as gently and fully as possible. True love. When such love exists between a man and a woman, then marriage is possible, she said. Yes. But how is one to understand what is meant by true love? Said the gentleman with the glittering eyes, timidly and with an awkward smile. "'Everybody knows what love is,' replied the lady, evidently wishing to break off her conversation with him. "'But I don't,' said the man. "'You must define what you understand.' "'Why, it's very simple,' she said. 
but stopped to consider. Love? Love is an exclusive preference for one above everybody else, said the lady. Preference for how long? A month? Two days? Or half an hour? said the gray-haired man, and began to laugh. Excuse me, we are evidently not speaking of the same thing. Oh, yes, exactly the same. She means, interposed the lawyer, pointing to the lady, that in the first place marriage must be the outcome of attachment, or love, if you please, and only where that exists is marriage sacred, so to speak. Secondly, that marriage, when not based on natural attachment, love, if you prefer the word, lacks the element that makes it morally binding. Do I understand you rightly? he added, addressing the lady. The lady indicated her approval of this explanation by a nod of her head. It follows, the lawyer continued, but the nervous man, whose eyes now glowed as if aflame, and who had evidently restrained himself with difficulty, began without letting the lawyer finish. Yes, I mean exactly the same thing, a preference for one person over everybody else, and I am only asking, a preference for how long? For how long? For a long time, for life sometimes, replied the lady, shrugging her shoulders. Oh, but that happens only in novels, and never in real life. In real life, this preference for one may last for years, that happens very rarely, more often for months, or perhaps for weeks, days, or hours, he said, evidently aware that he was astonishing everybody by his views, and pleased that it was so. Oh, what are you saying? But no, no, allow me— we all three began at once. Even the clerk uttered an indefinite sound of disapproval. "'Yes, I know,' the gray-haired man shouted above our voices. "'You are talking about what is supposed to be, but I am speaking of what is. Every man experiences what you call love for every pretty woman.' "'Oh, what you say is awful. But the feeling that is called love does exist among people.' It is given not for months or years, but for a lifetime. No, it does not. Even if we should grant that a man might prefer a certain woman all his life, the woman, in all probability, would prefer someone else. And so it always has been and still is in the world, he said. And taking out his cigarette case, he began to smoke. But the feeling may be reciprocal said the lawyer. No, sir, it can't, rejoined the other. Just as it cannot be that in a cartload of peas, two marked peas will lie side by side. Besides, it is not merely this impossibility, but the inevitable satiety. To love one person for a whole lifetime is like saying that one candle will burn a whole life, he said, greedily inhaling the smoke. "'But you are talking all the time about physical love. "'Don't you acknowledge love based on identity of ideals, "'on spiritual affinity?' asked the lady. "'Spiritual affinity, identity of ideals,' he repeated, "'emitting his peculiar sound. 
But in that case, why go to bed together? Excuse my coarseness. Or do people go to bed together because of the identity of their ideals? He said, bursting into a nervous laugh. But permit me, said the lawyer. Facts contradict you. We do see that matrimony exists, that all mankind, or the greater part of it, lives in wedlock, and many people honorably live long married lives. The gray-haired man again laughed. First you say that marriage is based on love, and when I express a doubt as to the existence of a love other than sensual, you prove the existence of love by the fact that marriages exist. But marriages in our days are mere deception. No, allow me, said the lawyer. I only say that marriages have existed and do exist. They do, but why? They have existed and do exist among people who see in marriage something sacramental, a mystery binding them in the sight of God. Among them, marriages do exist. Among us, People marry regarding marriage as nothing but copulation, and the result is either deception or coercion. When it is deception, it is easier to bear. The husband and wife merely deceive people by pretending to be monogamous while living polygamously. That is bad, but still bearable. But when, as most frequently happens, the husband and wife have undertaken the external duty of living together all their lives— and begin to hate each other after a month, and wish to part but still continue to live together, it leads to that terrible hell which makes people take to drink, shoot themselves, and kill or poison themselves or one another, he went on, speaking more and more rapidly, not allowing anyone to put in a word, and becoming more and more excited. We all felt embarrassed. Yes, Undoubtedly, there are critical episodes in married life, said the lawyer, wishing to end this disturbingly heated conversation. I see you have found out who I am, said the gray-haired man softly, and with apparent calm. No, I have not that pleasure. It is no great pleasure. I am that Posnyshev, in whose life that critical episode occurred to which you alluded. The episode when he killed his wife, he said, rapidly glancing at each of us. No one knew what to say, and all remained silent. Well, never mind, he said, with that peculiar sound of his. However, pardon me. Ah, I won't intrude on you. Oh, no, if you please, said the lawyer, himself not knowing, if you please, what? But Posnyshev, without listening to him, rapidly turned away and went back to his seat. The lawyer and the lady whispered together. I sat down beside Posnyshev in silence, unable to think of anything to say. It was too dark to read, so I shut my eyes pretending that I wished to go to sleep. So we traveled in silence to the next station. At that station, the lawyer and the lady moved into another car, having some time previously consulted the guard about it. The clerk lay down on the seat and fell asleep. Posnyshev kept smoking and drinking tea 
which he had made at the last station. When I opened my eyes and looked at him, he suddenly addressed me, resolutely and irritably. Perhaps it is unpleasant for you to sit with me, knowing who I am. In that case, I will go away. Oh no, not at all. Well then, won't you have some? Only it's very strong. He poured out some tea for me. They talk, and they always lie, he remarked. What are you speaking about? I asked. Always about the same thing, about that love of theirs and what it is. Don't you want to sleep? Not at all. Then would you like me to tell you how that love led to what happened to me? Yes, if it will not be painful for you. No, it is painful for me to be silent. Drink the tea. Or is it too strong? The tea was really like beer, but I drank a glass of it. Just then, the guard entered. Poznishev followed him with angry eyes, and only began to speak after he had left. Chapter 3 Well then, I'll tell you. But do you really want to hear it? I repeated that I wished it very much. He paused, rubbed his face with his hands, and began. If I am to tell it, I must tell everything from the beginning. I must tell how and why I married, and the kind of man I was before my marriage. Till my marriage, I lived as everybody does, that is, everybody in our class. I am a landowner and a graduate of the university, and was a marshal of the gentry. Before my marriage, I lived as everyone does, that is, dissolutely. And while living dissolutely, I was convinced, like everybody in our class, that I was living as one has to. I thought I was a charming fellow, and quite a moral man. I was not a seducer, had no unnatural tastes, did not make that the chief purpose of my life, as many of my associates did, but I practiced debauchery in a steady, decent way, for health's sake. I avoided women who might tie my hands by having a child or by attachment for me. However, there may have been children and attachments, but I acted as if there were not. And this I not only considered moral, but I was even proud of it. He paused and gave vent to his peculiar sound, as he evidently did whenever a new idea occurred to him. "'And you know, that is the chief abomination,' he exclaimed. "'Dissoluteness does not lie in anything physical. No kind of physical misconduct is debauchery. Real debauchery lies precisely in freeing oneself from moral relations with a woman with whom you have physical intimacy. And such emancipation I regarded as a merit.' I remember how I once worried because I had not had an opportunity to pay a woman who gave herself to me, having probably taken a fancy to me, and how I only became tranquil after having sent her some money, thereby intimating that I did not consider myself in any way morally bound to her. Don't nod as if you agreed with me, he suddenly shouted at me. Don't I know these things? We all, and you too unless you are a rare exception— Hold those same views, just as I used to. Never mind, I beg your pardon, but the fact is that it's terrible, 
terrible, terrible. What is terrible? I asked. The abyss of error in which we live regarding women and our relations with them. No, I can't speak calmly about it, not because of that episode, as he called it, in my life, but because since that episode occurred, my eyes have been opened, and I have seen everything in quite a different light. Everything reversed. Everything reversed. He lit a cigarette and began to speak, leaning his elbows on his knees. It was too dark to see his face, but, above the jolting of the train, I could hear his impressive and pleasant voice. Chapter 4 Yes, only after such torments as I have endured, only by their means, have I understood where the root of the matter lies, understood what ought to be, and therefore seen all the horror of what is. So you will see how and when that which led up to my episode began. It began when I was not quite sixteen. It happened when I still went to the grammar school, and my elder brother was a first-year student at the university. I had not yet known any woman, but, like all the unfortunate children of our class, I was no longer an innocent boy. I had been depraved two years before that by other boys. Already woman, not some particular woman, but woman as something to be desired, woman, every woman, woman's nudity, tormented me. My solitude was not pure. I was tormented, as ninety-nine percent of our boys are. I was horrified, I suffered, I prayed, and I fell. I was already depraved in imagination and in fact, but I had not yet taken the last step. I was perishing, but I had not yet laid hands on another human being. But one day, a comrade of my brother's, a jolly student, a so-called good fellow, that is, the worst kind of good-for-nothing, who had taught us to drink and to play cards, persuaded us after a carousal to go there. We went. My brother was also still innocent, and he fell that same night. And I, a fifteen-year-old boy, defiled myself and took part in defiling a woman, without at all understanding what I was doing. I had never heard from any of my elders that what I was doing was wrong, you know, and indeed, no one hears it now. It is true it is in the commandments, but then the commandments are only needed to answer the priest at scripture examination, and even then they are not very necessary, not nearly as necessary as the commandment about the use of oot in conditional sentences in Latin. And so I never heard those older persons, whose opinions I respected, say that it was an evil. On the contrary— I heard people I respected say it was good. I had heard that my struggles and sufferings would be eased after that. I heard this and read it, and heard my elders say it would be good for my health, while from my comrades I heard that it was rather a fine, spirited thing to do. So in general, I expected nothing but good from it. The risk of disease? But that too had been foreseen. A paternal government saw to that. It sees to the correct working of the brothels, and makes profligacy safe for schoolboys. 
doctors too deal with it for a consideration. That is proper. They assert that debauchery is good for the health, and they organize proper, well-regulated debauchery. I know some mothers who attend to their son's health in that sense, and science sends them to the brothels. Why do you say science? I asked. Why, who are the doctors, the priests of science? Who deprave youths by maintaining that this is necessary for their health? They do. Yet, if a one-hundredth part of the efforts devoted to the cure of syphilis were devoted to the eradication of debauchery, there would long ago not have been a trace of syphilis left. But, as it is, efforts are made not to eradicate debauchery, but to encourage it, and to make debauchery safe. That is not the point, however. The point is that with me, and with nine-tenths, if not more, not of our class only, but of all classes, even the peasants, this terrible thing happens that happened to me. I fell not because I succumbed to the natural temptation of a particular woman's charm. No, I was not seduced by a woman. But I fell because, in the set around me, what was really a fall was regarded by some as a most legitimate function good for one's health, and by others as a very natural and not only excusable but even innocent amusement for a young man. I did not understand that it was a fall, but simply indulged in that half-pleasure, half-need, which, as was suggested to me, was natural at a certain age." I began to indulge in debauchery as I began to drink and to smoke. Yet in that first fall there was something special and pathetic. I remember that at once, on the spot before I left the room, I felt sad, so sad that I wanted to cry, to cry for the loss of my innocence and for my relationship with women, now sullied forever. Yes, my natural, simple relationship with women was spoiled forever. From that time I have not had, and could not have, pure relations with women. I had become what is called a libertine. To be a libertine is a physical condition, like that of a morphinist, a drunkard, or a smoker. As a morphinist, a drunkard, or a smoker is no longer normal— so, too, a man who has known several women for his pleasure is not normal, but is a man perverted forever, a libertine. As a drunkard or a morphinist can be recognized at once by his face and manner, so it is with a libertine. A libertine may restrain himself, may struggle, but he will never have those pure, simple, clear, brotherly relations with a woman— by the time he looks at a young woman and examines her, a libertine can always be recognized. And I had become, and I remained, a libertine. And it was this that brought me to ruin. Chapter 5 Ah, yes, after that things went from bad to worse, and there were all sorts of deviations. Oh, God! When I recall the abominations I committed in this respect, I am seized with horror. And that is true of me, whom my companions, I remember, ridiculed for my so-called innocence. And when one hears of the gilded youths, 
of officers of the Parisians. And when all these gentlemen and I, who have on our souls hundreds of the most varied and horrible crimes against women, when we thirty-year-old profligates, very carefully washed, shaved, perfumed, in clean linen and in evening dress or uniform, enter a drawing-room or ballroom, we are emblems of purity, charming. Only think of what ought to be, and of what is. When in society such a gentleman comes up to my sister or daughter, I, knowing his life, ought to go up to him, take him aside, and say quietly, My dear fellow, I know the life you lead, and how and with whom you pass your nights. This is no place for you. There are pure, innocent girls here. Be off. That is what ought to be. But what happens is that when such a gentleman comes and dances, embracing our sister or daughter, we are jubilant, if he is rich and well-connected. Maybe after Regalboche he will honor my daughter. Even if traces of disease remain, no matter. They are clever at curing that nowadays. Oh, yes, I know several girls in the best society whom their parents enthusiastically gave in marriage to men suffering from a certain disease. Oh, the abomination of it. But a time will come when this abomination and falsehood will be exposed. He made his strange noise several times and again drank tea. It was fearfully strong, and there was no water with which to dilute it. I felt that I was much excited by the two glasses I had drunk. Probably the tea affected him too, for he became more and more excited. His voice grew increasingly mellow and expressive. He continually changed his position, now taking off his cap and now putting it on again, and his face changed strangely in the semi-darkness in which we were sitting. Well, so I lived till I was thirty, not abandoning for a moment the intention of marrying and arranging for myself a most elevated and pure family life. With that purpose, I observed the girls suitable for that end, he continued. I weltered in a mire of debauchery, and at the same time was on the lookout for a girl pure enough to be worthy of me. I rejected many just because they were not pure enough to suit me, but at last I found one whom I considered worthy. She was one of two daughters of a once wealthy Penza landowner who had been ruined. One evening, after we had been out in a boat and had returned by moonlight, and I was sitting beside her, admiring her curls and her shapely figure in a tight-fitting jersey, I suddenly decided that it was she. It seemed to me that evening that she understood all that I felt and thought, and that what I felt and thought was very lofty. In reality, it was only that the jersey and the curls were particularly becoming to her and that after a day spent near her, I wanted to be still closer. It is amazing how complete is the delusion that beauty is goodness. A handsome woman talks nonsense. You listen and hear not nonsense but cleverness. She says and does horrid things, and you see only charm. And if a handsome woman does not say stupid or horrid things, you at once persuade yourself that she is wonderfully clever and moral. 
I returned home in rapture, decided that she was the acme of moral perfection, and that therefore she was worthy to be my wife, and I proposed to her the next day. What a muddle it is, out of a thousand men who marry, not only among us, but unfortunately also among the masses, there is hardly one who has not already been married ten, a hundred, or even, like Don Juan, a thousand times before his wedding. It is true, as I have heard and have myself observed, that there are nowadays some chaste young men who feel and know that this thing is not a joke, but an important matter. God help them! but in my time there was not one such in ten thousand. And everybody knows this, and pretends not to know it. In all the novels they describe in detail the hero's feelings, and the ponds and bushes beside which they walk, but when their great love for some maiden is described, nothing is said about what has happened to these interesting heroes before, not a word about their frequenting certain houses, or about the servant girls, cooks, and other people's wives. If there are such improper novels, they are not put into the hands of those who most need this information. The unmarried girls. We first pretend to these girls that the profligacy which fills half the life of our towns, and even of the villages, does not exist at all. Then we get so accustomed to this pretense that at last, like the English, we ourselves really begin to believe that we are all moral people and live in a moral world. The girls, poor things, believe this quite seriously. So, too, did my unfortunate wife. I remember how, when we were engaged, I showed her my diary, from which she could learn something, if but a little, of my past, especially about my last liaison, of which she might hear from others, and about which I therefore felt it necessary to inform her. I remember her horror, despair, and confusion when she learnt of it and understood it. I saw that she then wanted to give me up. And why did she not do so? He again made that sound, swallowed another mouthful of tea, and remained silent for a while. Chapter 6 No, after all, it is better, better so, he exclaimed. It serves me right. But that's not to the point. I mean to say that it is only the unfortunate girls who are deceived. The mothers know it, especially mothers educated by their own husbands. They know it very well. While pretending to believe in the purity of men, they act quite differently. They know with what sort of bait to catch men for themselves and for their daughters. You see, it is only we men who don't know, because we don't wish to know, what women know very well, that the most exalted poetic love, as we call it, depends not on moral qualities, but on physical nearness, and on the coiffure, and the color and cut of the dress. Ask an expert coquette, who has set herself the task of captivating a man which she would prefer to risk, to be convicted in his presence of lying, of cruelty, or even of dissoluteness, or to appear before him in an ugly and badly made dress. She will always prefer the first. She knows that we are continually lying about high sentiments, 
but really only want her body, and will therefore forgive any abomination except an ugly, tasteless costume that is in bad style. A coquette knows that consciously, and every innocent girl knows it unconsciously, just as animals do. That is why there are those detestable jerseys, bustles, and naked shoulders, arms, almost breasts. A woman, especially if she has passed the male school, knows very well that all the talk about elevated subjects is just talk, but that what a man wants is her body and all that presents it in the most deceptive but alluring light, and she acts accordingly. If we only throw aside our familiarity with this indecency, which has become a second nature to us, and look at the life of our upper classes as it is, in all its shamelessness, why, it is simply a brothel. You don't agree? Allow me. I'll prove it, he said, interrupting me. You say that the women of our society have other interests in life than prostitutes have, but I say no, and will prove it. If people differ in the aims of their lives, by the inner content of their lives, this difference will necessarily be reflected in externals, and their externals will be different. But look at those unfortunate despised women, and at the highest society ladies. The same costumes, the same fashions, the same perfumes, the exposure of arms, shoulders, and breasts, the same tight skirts over prominent bustles, the same passion for little stones, for costly glittering objects, the same amusements, dances, music, and singing. As the former employ all means to allure, so do these others. Chapter 7 Well, so these jerseys and curls and bustles caught me. It was very easy to catch me, for I was brought up in the conditions in which amorous young people are forced like cucumbers in a hotbed. You see, our stimulating superabundance of food, together with complete physical idleness, is nothing but a systemic excitement of desire. Whether this astonishes you or not, it is so. Why, till quite recently, I did not see anything of this myself, but now I have seen it. That is why it torments me that nobody knows this, and people talk such nonsense as that lady did. Yes, last spring some peasants were working in our neighborhood on a railway embankment. The usual food of a young peasant is rye bread, kvass, and onions. He keeps alive and is vigorous and healthy. His work is light agricultural work. When he goes to railway work, his rations are buckwheat porridge and a pound of meat a day. But he works off that pound of meat during his sixteen hours' work, wheeling barrow loads of a half a ton weight, so it is just enough for him. But we, who every day consume two pounds of meat and game and fish and all sorts of heating foods and drinks, where does that go to? Into excesses of sensuality. And if it goes there and the safety valve is open, all is well. But try and close the safety valve, as I closed it temporarily, and at once a stimulus arises which, passing through the prism of our artificial life, expresses itself in utter infatuation, sometimes even platonic. And I fell in love, as they all do. 
everything was there to hand, raptures, tenderness, and poetry. In reality, that love of mine was the result, on the one hand, of her mama's and the dressmaker's activity, and on the other, of the superabundance of food consumed by me while living an idle life. If on the one hand there had been no boating, no dressmaker with her waists and so forth, and had my wife been sitting at home in a shapeless dressing gown, and had I, on the other hand, been in circumstances normal to man, consuming just enough food to suffice for the work I did, and had the safety valve been open, it happened to be closed at the time, I should not have fallen in love, and nothing of all of this would have happened.' 